Amen. Yes, Jesus, you're unchangeable, unbreakable, unstoppable, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-presence. Your mind easily conceives the vastness of the universe and yet quietly speaks to each soul. We worship you, a great and awesome God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, Harvest. If you don't know who I am, my name is Ryan Jackson. Um, I serve here at Harvest as the associate pastor. I'm delighted to be filling the pulpit this morning for our senior pastor. It finally snowed. I mean, it's been cold enough for a long time, and it finally gave us a little bit of snow. And if you haven't seen the forecast, just a heads up, more's coming. And you know what snowy days are good for? Puzzles. Absolutely. Who loves puzzles? Oh, man, good. Absolutely love puzzles. We just got this thing in our house, a puzzle board. It's actually made to put a puzzle on. It's got these really thin drawers that you can put the pieces in. It's really cool. And we got a puzzle for it, and our whole family's kind of been working on it. Um, And one of the pieces, wouldn't you know it, got chewed by the dog. And it's frustrating when you're missing puzzle pieces. I mean, that's just, there might be nothing worse. Puzzle pieces. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to doing the work of the Lord, do you have all the pieces? Do you have all the pieces to serve the Lord I mean, truly serve at the best. I want to delve in today into the book of Exodus. We're going to be covering Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12. And we're going to be looking at a particular story. I'm sure very familiar to all of you. um, But we're going to be looking at a particular story about the life of Moses and his first attempt to serve the Lord. And we're going to see he was missing some pieces. But before we dive into the story, I want to give you just some quick background, just so you know where we are. Uh, Book of Exodus chapter 1 tells us that the Hebrews, the Israelites, have greatly multiplied. At the end of Genesis, Joseph had moved Jacob, his father, and his brothers and their entire family, 70 persons in all, to Egypt because of the famine. And they got there, and they settled there, and then Joseph died, and his brothers died, and that whole generation died, but the nation grew and actually exploded. We find out in the book of Exodus that around 600,000 men just the men, have populated Israel. And we find ourselves in our story today that generations later, 
a new pharaoh has, has ascended the throne, and it says in the text that he did not know Joseph. And he looks out at all of these Hebrews just continuing to multiply and multiply, and there's fear. And so he says to his Egyptian counselors, let's do this. Let's enslave these Hebrews, or else they're going to rise up. They're going to be so mighty. They're going to join with our enemies, and they're going to take us over. So the Hebrews are put to forced labor. There's, there's actually uh, Egyptian taskmasters, and they create Hebrew foremen, and together they subdue the Hebrews, and they've put them to forced labor. But he doesn't stop there, the Pharaoh. He then gets to a point where he says, Let's kill all the male children who are born. And he actually tells Hebrew midwives to do that. If there is a male child born to a Hebrew woman, kill it. So you can think about the stress, the oppression, the setting that we're in. If you are a Hebrew right now in Egypt, it's not a good time. And then Moses is born. And the text actually tells us that Moses' mother hides him for three months, and when she can hide him no longer, she puts him in a basket, and she puts him by the reeds where he's discovered by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And she, out of the compassion of her heart, I think the, 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 the motherly instinct kicks in. She sees this baby, and she decides to raise this child. And Moses, a Hebrew, is raised in the palace as a grandson of the Pharaoh who tried to kill him. That brings us to where we are today. Now we go from that event, Moses' birth about three months old, fast forward about 40 years, Moses is grown up. Pick up with a text with me in Exodus chapter two, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So we get kind of clued in here to a couple things. Moses identifies himself as a Hebrew. At some point, he realized he wasn't Egyptian, he was Hebrew. We're not exactly sure of the details there, but at some point, Moses realizes who he is. And he goes out and he looks at the burdens of his people and he sees this Egyptian beating one of his own. Verse 12, he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses, the vigilante. Come to save his brothers. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and you've got to appreciate Moses' heart here. Moses has a heart for his people, despite the fact that he'd been raised in the palace, and Moses has a heart for those who are picked on. We're going to actually see that a little bit later, too. Moses has a heart for the downtrodden. Moses has a heart for the oppressed. And so he strikes the Egyptian, kills him, and then hides him in the sand. Now, why is he doing all this? You know, it's interesting because Moses do, isn't just doing this because one of his own brothers is being hurt. There's a deeper issue going on here, and we see that in Acts chapter 7. Do you remember Stephen? Before Stephen was martyred, he gives a message to those who are going to martyr him, and he talks about 
Moses. Use the Bible to interpret the Bible whenever you can. Moses 7, 23 through 25. I'm going to read this to you. This is Stephen speaking. He says, when he, talking about Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, here's the key, verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Something was going on in Moses' heart here. It wasn't only that one of his brothers was being beat, it's that he was sensing a calling from God. And your first piece of the puzzle, the first element of true obedience is God's calling. The first element, the first piece that we need in order to obey God truly is God's calling. And Moses senses this. Moses senses this. It says in Acts chapter 7 that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He sensed that he was going to be a deliverer for his people. He sensed that calling. But he didn't have all the pieces. He took matters in his own hands and he killed this Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Supposing that his brothers would understand that God was calling him to give them salvation. But the latter part, the last part of verse 25 in Acts 7 says, but they did not understand. How do we know that? Back to Exodus, verse 13. When he, Moses, went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian, the text says, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. See, what's happening here is that Moses jumped the gun. He sensed the calling from God and he jumped the gun. He kills this Egyptian, but it did not remain a secret. It was known. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we sense a calling from the Lord and without having all the pieces, we jump into it. Has anyone ever heard of the comedian Jerry Clower? Oh, a couple of you out there. Okay, great. Jerry Clower, Christian comedian, he tells this story of a time he was witnessing to somebody and this person actually decides to accept Christ. And that's awesome. But the next day, he wanted to go teaching in seminary. And Jerry Clower said, friend, you just accepted Christ. I think your zeal is jumping ahead of your understanding of the word of God. So you need to study a little bit more. And that was good advice. But sometimes we do that. Sometimes we sense a calling from the Lord and without even thinking, we jump in with both feet. And that's what happened to Moses here. Surely the thing is known and it gets worse. Look at verse 15. 
When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Pharaoh overhears somehow that this incident happened, and Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. Moses catches wind of it, and he flees. He flees all the way to Midian, which is approximately 300 miles east. And he gets to Midian, and he sits down by a well. And I just get the sense that he's done. I tried. I thought God was calling me to do this. I did what I thought I should do. It backfired miserably. I come all the way to Midian. I'm just done. Ever felt like that? You ever got involved in something, even maybe with a lot of excitement, got involved in something and it did not go your way and you got out of it and you were like, I'm just done. I get a sense that that's what Moses is feeling right here. He goes to Midian. And he actually, interestingly enough, Midian, the Midianites who lived there, were descendants of Abraham. Not through Isaac from his wife Sarah, but through his son Midian from Abraham's second wife, Keturah. So, ironically, happened that Moses ends up with descendants, distant relatives. He sits down by this well, and look what happens next. Verse 16, now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their troughs with, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. Okay, so I told you that Midians were descendants of Abraham, and there was a priest there. He actually had two names. He was called Ruel or Jethro. And remember at this time, this is still early on, at this time he's a priest, but he's not a Levitical priest because the Levitical priesthood had not been set up yet. We're not exactly sure how he's a priest, whether that was like a self-proclaimed thing or maybe the people of Midian appointed him to be a priest, but somehow he's a priest and it's very likely that he's a priest of the true God. It's very likely he's a priest of Yahweh. The reason that we can say that is because we see in Exodus 18 that Jethro rejoices in all the works of God when Moses relays to him what had happened in Egypt. So we can come to the conclusion that he was probably a priest of the Most High God. He has seven daughters. These are shepherdesses. And they go to this well to water their father's flock. And it says, the text is very interesting. It says, the shepherds came. Maybe it was a gang name. I don't know. The shepherds. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Again, I, I told you we'd see this again. You see Moses' heart here for the downtrodden, for the oppressed. He can't handle people being oppressed. He sees these shepherdesses come to water the flock. The shepherds come and drive them away. And Moses, one man against, we're not told how many shepherds there are. Moses goes one man against them and pulls some sort of Egyptian jujitsu and chases them off. I really would have loved to have seen how that happened. And then he waters their flock. Now, what happens next is kind of comical because the shepherdesses just leave. They see this, this, this man stand up and defend them, maybe in shock and all, and they just like, we got to go tell dad, and they run. We see that because look at verse 18. When they, come home, when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you come home so soon today? 
That gives us a clue that probably what happened at the well was a common occurrence. They would go to water their flock and the shepherds would chase them away and force them to wait. So at some point, they're coming home early. There's something different about this day. And, and Ruel or Jethro, he says, how is it that you have come home so early today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Notice they call him an Egyptian. Why? We don't really know. Maybe it was the way he was dressed. Maybe it was his hairstyle. Maybe it was his beard. We're not exactly sure. Maybe it was his fighting jujitsu. Who knows? But somehow they identify him as an Egyptian. And then Jethro says, he said to his daughters, well, then where is he? Oh, we left him by the well. Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that I may eat bread. Now, let me speak to the fathers for a second. Fathers, if somebody was bullying your children and someone else came and stood up for him, wouldn't that just melt your heart? I mean, that person would be your hero. Jethro's like, where is this guy? I don't care that he's an Egyptian. Bring him here. Let's feed him. Verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now verses 21 and 22 is obviously a summary. Moses comes, he meets Jethro. There's some sort of time that passes. He gets married, he has a kid and he calls his name Gershom. Now Gershom probably comes from two Hebrew words that when you put them together means an alien there. So thus Moses is referring to himself as an alien in a foreign land. For all intents and purposes, Moses has settled. He settled. He came to Midian. He got married. He had a child. Here's my life. I'm going to be a shepherd I'm going to raise sheep. I'm going to raise my kids. This is my life. I came from Egypt. I came from the Egyptian palace, which by the way, at this time would have had the best education out there. He came from a high society. I thought God was calling me to do something, but it didn't work out. So I'm just going to live out my life. Move to Midian. Here I am. Moses is settled. Perhaps you've been there as well. Perhaps you thought God was calling you to do something. Get involved in a Bible study. Get involved in missions work. Be a witness to your neighborhood. Be a a source of gospel information on social media. I don't know. Maybe God's calling you to do something and you tried and you failed and you just came to a point where I'm done. I'm done. Picture in your head Moses holding his baby son and all he can see is this is my life now. I'm going to raise sheep, raise my children, and settle here. And if this were a movie, the scene would dissolve, 
and a text would appear at the bottom of the screen and it would say, meanwhile, we go back to Egypt. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue, their their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. There's four very comforting Words in this passage. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. God is intimately involved with his people. Yes, he's let this time of slavery go for a period of time, but he sees, he hears, he remembers, and he knows. And when you find yourself in a place of pain, of agony, of questioning the future, of anxiety, of fear, God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows, and God has a plan. Chapter three, we're back to Moses now. It says, now Moses, by the way, this is 40 years later, okay? You can actually divide Moses' life into three periods of 40 years. His first 40 years in Egypt, his second 40 years in Midian, and then his third 40 years running around the countryside. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. By the way, another name for Horeb is Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments. Absolutely. That's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Very good. Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is a supernatural event, and I've often wondered, what did this look like? I mean, can you picture flames dancing around bush, and the leaves remain green, and the wood remains brown? So I have to ask myself, was there a snap and crackle? Probably not, because that's what happens when wood heats up. Was there smoke? I have no idea. I have, I've often wondered, what did this look like? But this bush is on fire, yet it's not burning. And Moses says to the sheep, I guess, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Anyone talk to themselves? Okay, you're good company. Actually, it's interesting. It's interesting that Moses records this. Who wrote this, by the way? I just said it. Moses. It's interesting that he would write this and then earlier when the Egyptian is discovered or when the, when the matter of the Egyptian's murder is discovered, it says that he thought the matter is known. What's interesting about that is because Moses, Moses is basically writing his autobiography, we get a very intimate picture in the mind of this man. And that is awesome. 
So he turns aside to see this great sight. Now this is a turning point in Moses' life. Earlier in Moses' life, he felt the calling from God, but he was missing a piece. He was missing a piece. The second element of true obedience is God's timing. And that's point number two. The second element of true obedience is God's timing. Moses felt the call, but he was missing God's timing. Look at verse four. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see God, pardon me, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Or maybe it was more like, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God calls to Moses and initially tells him two things. Don't come near and take off your shoes. Don't come near and take off your shoes. Now, why would God tell him not to come near? Well, what happened in the Old Testament if you got too near to God? You died. You got too near to God in the Old Testament, you died. So you didn't mess around in the presence of the Lord. You guys might remember Uzzah who died simply from touching the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was a serious matter. And if you got too close, you died. So Moses tells him, don't come too close. And then he says, take the shoes off your feet. Now, there's a couple things that might be going on there. One, removing your shoes may have been a formality in the presence of a superior in some of those cultures. So it may have been that God was simply saying, you're in the presence of a superior, the superior. Another thing that could be going on with the taking off of shoes, what's on the bottom of our shoes? Dirt, dust, grime, absolutely. In fact, it becomes a cultural thing in the, in the, among the Jews to wash people's feet as a way of hospitality. So it could be that removing your shoes, is you remove the grime, you're taking away the dirt and the yuck because you're in front of God. God continues speaking in verse six. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And that's appropriate. That's appropriate. I told you in the Old Testament, when people got too close to God, they would die. But even in the New Testament, we see when an angel appears, a person falls flat on their face, even before just an angel an appropriate response to the Lord, hiding our face. Revelation tells us about the throne of Jesus Christ and angels who fly around the throne. And it's interesting because the angels have six wings. Two of them are used for flight. Two of them are used for covering their feet and two of them are used for covering their face before the throne of God. You know, we love to think about God's love and God's mercy and God's acceptance and God's grace, and we should. Those are awesome characteristics of our Lord, but don't forget God is holy. God is just. God is sovereign. And may I submit to you that when we appear before Jesus Christ one day, I imagine 
Through tears of gratitude, we too will hide our face. And then look at him. Because I can't wait to see him. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I'm coming down to deliver them. Now, at this point, I imagine Moses is thinking, yes, all right, that's awesome. Let's take them out of this land. Let's put them in a good land. By the way, God gives good gifts. That's true 4G for you. God gives good gifts. A land of milk and honey, by the way, is, is a figure of speech for a fertile land, a lush land. What's all around Israel? Desert. God's going to take them out of Egypt and not dump them in the desert. He wants to bring them to a good land. It says here in verse 8, God says, I have come down. That word down is the Hebrew word yarad, and it's a simple word. It just, it just literally means to descend or to lower. But it's significant here because it tells us that God is on the move. God has come down. Now you might stop and think, I thought God was omnipresent. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in the Bible, we see instances when God moves in a specific place at a specific time. And there's something different about the way he manifests himself. God is coming down. God is going to move. Do you remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? That's like one of the greatest stories. In that story, you have Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy who are in Narnia, the magical place. And at one point in the book, they're having a meal with the beavers. And Mr. Beaver gets all excited and he leans forward at one point and he says, Aslan is on the move. And Aslan, if you remember, is, is the, the personification of Jesus in that story. When I read this, it sounds a lot the same way. I have come down. God is on the move. The timing is now right. God's coming down. It's time. God is on the move. Look at verse 9. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I told you that up to this point, Moses is probably thinking, yes, this is great. You're going you're to take the children of Israel out of Egypt and put them in a good land. I'm all for that. And we get to verse 10, and God says, come, I will send you. Time out. You're going to do what? Verse 11, but Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
we tried this. It didn't work. I don't know if you remember, God, but 40 years ago, I thought I sensed your call, and I was absolutely willing to do it, and I started to, but it fell apart. I made a mess of things, and that was 40 years ago. I'm 80 now, and I've lived my life, and I'm happy, and I'm content, and you want to send me back? You know, it's interesting that God chooses Moses. It really is. God can raise up anybody. Remember who succeeds Moses at the end of Deuteronomy? Joshua. Where was Joshua? He's in Egypt. Why didn't God just raise up Joshua? He's already there. He's younger. Why does God raise up Moses? Because God chose Moses. God chooses whom he will. Moses gets a personal message from God. And his response is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, I'm not your guy. Verse 12. This is God speaking. He said, but... I will be with you. The reason it didn't work last time, Moses, is because you didn't wait on me. Yes, you sensed my calling, but you did not wait on my timing. And furthermore, point number three, the last piece that we need for true obedience is God's presence. God's presence. I will be with you. Now I told you earlier in the, Old, in the Old Testament you couldn't get too close to God. And yet, this is exactly what the human heart longs for. Every pursuit of man is striving for something that only God can satisfy. Everything that we strive for apart from Jesus is only because we're really striving for Jesus. We just may not know that. G.K. Chesterton once wrote this. Every time a man knocks on a brothel door, he is really searching for God. We fill our lives with all kinds of things looking for satisfaction when what we really need is the presence of God. We long for the presence of God. You may have heard it said that there's a God-shaped hole in all our hearts, and that's exactly true, and that's exactly what everyone is looking for. God's presence was terrifying in the Old Testament. But under the new covenant, of Jesus Christ, what does he say? He says, come, come. In the Old Testament, God dwelt as a pillar of cloud or fire in the tabernacle, which was terrifying. There was actually a place in Exodus 20 where the Israelites say, 
we can't speak to God. We're too scared. Moses, you go take care of that. He's terrifying. But now, God no longer dwells in a tabernacle where we go to him. He tabernacles inside of each of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. The very thing that God told Moses, I will be with you, is the very thing that every human heart longs for, and it's the very thing that Jesus offers today. Verse 12 again, he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Go get them and come and bring them back here. Now, if you know the story, it doesn't end here between Moses and God. There's actually a a bit of a, well, there's an argument. An argument ensues between Moses and God, which is kind of dangerous because God just told Moses, you're on holy ground. Nonetheless, he argues with God, but in the end, Moses complies and chooses to obey. And this idea that God's presence is with Moses makes a lasting impression on him. We see later in Exodus 33, just after the incident of the golden calf, remember that? Just after that incident, God and Moses are having this exchange and initially God says, I'm not going with you anymore. This is a sinful, stiff-necked people and I'm not going with you. I'll send you an angel to lead the way, but I'm not going. And during that exchange, Moses begs God to go with them. Don't leave us here. And God relents. God says, okay, I'll go with you. I'll go with you, Moses. And then in verse 14 of Exodus 13, God says this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct? What makes us distinct from the rest of the world? It's the very presence of God living inside of us. And the pieces that Moses was missing were the timing of God and the presence of God. God's presence makes all the difference, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Have you heard that before in the Bible? Matthew 28, Jesus says these same words to 11 bumbling disciples. He says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promised to be with you always. That word always was missing from Exodus chapter three. But it's present here in Matthew 28. Why? 
I will be with you always. If you read further through Exodus and on through the Pentateuch, you know that this was not the first time God threatened to leave. God actually threatens to leave several times because of the sinfulness of the people of Israel. And yet Jesus says, I will be with you always. How could he promise that? Because I don't know about you, but I'm just as fickle as the people of Israel. I'm just as sinful as the people of Israel. I'm just as faithless to God as they were. And yet Jesus never says to me, I'm out of here. He says, I'm with you always. How could Jesus promise that? If I'm just as fickle, if we are just as fickle, how could Jesus promise to be with us always? Because Jesus experienced the ultimate abandonment by God. Because Jesus felt the distance from God on the cross. All the pain, all the humiliation, all the betrayal that Jesus experienced was nothing compared to the moment his own father turned his face away. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took the abandonment that was meant for us and paying that debt means he will never abandon you. And that's why Jesus can say, I will be with you always. Perhaps like Moses, you felt God calling you to do something. Maybe it's a big thing, ministry, mission work, something along those lines. Maybe it's a small thing, being a presence for God at work in my neighborhood. Sometimes it's an obvious thing. God wants you to witness that's in the Bible. If you have kids, God wants you to be a parent. He's called you to that. Maybe you're asking the question, how do I know God is calling me to do something? I would answer it this way. Is there a burden on your heart for someone, for something? Has God put a burden on your heart? Is there something that you just can't seem to make go away? That would be with the difference of telling between God calling and me wanting. Sometimes we get that a little confused. I want to do something versus God is calling me to do something. The difference is I give this to the Lord in prayer and this burden's not going away. That's a good sign that God might be calling you to something. Perhaps you do sense the call. You have the burden. You believe God is calling you to something. But like Moses, you're not sure the timing. Maybe you've even tried and jumped in with both feet and maybe it didn't go quite right. 
How do I even know what God's timing is? He's not going to appear to me in a burning bush. God's timing takes prayer. God's timing takes conversation with other godly people. God's timing sometimes looks at the circumstances of your life and realizing this is not it right now or things are falling into place. Maybe this is God's timing. Sometimes God's timing happens suddenly. For instance, if you're called to witness, sometimes they could pose you a question out of the blue. And usually those are the moments you're not ready. Which leads us to the third thing. Perhaps you've sensed God's call. Perhaps you believe the timing is right. But you're not relying on the presence of God. You're not relying on the Holy Spirit. You're trying to do it in your own strength. That was Moses' second problem. He tried to do it in his own strength. And again, messed things up. Well, how do I operate in God's strength? Ask him. Step out in faith. We pray and we seek the face of God. God's not going to just come in and you know, take over your body like a robot. He just wants you to step out in faith and trust him. Like I said, sometimes the moment comes suddenly. One of the great things about having children is that opportunities to serve God are abundant. From the pointing them to Jesus to breaking up fights, children supply opportunities to serve God all throughout the day. How do I know I'm doing this in God's strength? You know, sometimes it's simply a matter of taking a breath, saying a prayer, and doing it. And that can happen in the suddenlies, and that can happen in the long term as well. And let me add something. Practicing God's presence. Give your moments to the Lord over and over and over again all throughout the day. Because the problem is our flesh is going to want to take that back. And let me challenge you to go an extra mile here. Every morning this week, let me challenge you, every morning, wake up and let your first thoughts be, my God is with me. My God is with me. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So where do you sense God's call on your life? Have you waited for his timing and do you rely on his presence? In other words, do you have all the pieces? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I admit my own shortcomings. I admit not waiting for all the pieces in my own life when it comes to pursuing what you want from me. And I know that's true of my brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, I want to operate with all of the pieces for true obedience. 
And I pray that same prayer for everyone in this room. May you grant us the wisdom to discern your call, the patience to wait for your timing, and the dependence upon your strength. You are good, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name.